This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. If you have ever studied the ins and outs of spiritual warfare, no doubt your go-to passage is Ephesians 6. As it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But how much do we really understand about the battle that we face as Christians? It's an important question that we're going to tackle today with Todd Hampson, author, illustrator, and animation producer, and he is out with a great book we'll be discussing called The Nonprofit's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. Todd, it's just great to welcome you back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on again. Well, it's an honor. What are your thoughts on the subject of the reality of spiritual warfare? Because I know it's not often a topic that is thoroughly discussed. People make reference to it or they'll quote Ephesians 6, but they don't talk very much, I would say, about the ins and outs of their daily spiritual warfare. What do you make of that? You know, I think there's a lot of confusion. I think there's enough, um, you know, pop culture ideas about angels and demons and movies and that kind of thing that have informed people's ideas. But rarely have people taken a systematic study through the entire Bible on the topic to show what the history of it is, why it's there in the first place, how it plays out, and how believers are caught in the middle. And, and also just trying to identify in our lives what is spiritual warfare and what is just results of living in a fallen world. Yeah, that, now that's a very important distinction because I do think people can be confused about it. And as you point out, there is some misinformation that's out there. What is real spiritual warfare versus some of the misinformation people get about spiritual warfare? I think real spiritual warfare is when, when you can identify there is actually an evil component. Um, for example, there's covert and overt spiritual warfare, like if, if you've had the opportunity to talk to a missionary that's on the front lines, like, say, Papua New Guinea or, or you know, new tribes reaching new people. Yep. They'll often tell you stories of uh, overt spiritual warfare that'll make your, the hair stand up on your neck. <laughs> mm. but, but also we forget about the more subtle spiritual warfare uh, which you referenced in Ephesians 6, where Satan really has kind of a whole network system of hierarchy, hierarchical types of uh, beings that do evil things and influence evil people. Um, so it's, it's very complex, and that's why I think a systematic study that you can understand and, and that points straight to the Bible gives people a lot of good information to kind of identify what is and what is not spiritual warfare. Yeah. Now, would you say, Todd, that spiritual warfare is limited to the Christian? Because when we talk about the world being in the power of the evil one, even though God is you know, still Lord and still on the throne, uh, if you are of your father, the devil, are you engaging in spiritual warfare of any kind? Or is this something that is simply for Christians because we belong to the Lord? Well, I think the, the Christians definitely are attacked where, you know, where, where 
the enemy wants to do anything he can to minimize our witness and to, you know, steal our hope and our joy and that kind of thing. But he uses non-believers in ways they may or may not even realize um, to do his will uh, through through that network that we talked about. Right. And, and, you know, this is interesting because I've sometimes gotten into conversations with Christians saying, what is it that Satan really wants from us? You mentioned things like minimizing our joy or discouraging us or, you know, hampering our witness. But ultimately, the devil cannot get us out of the palm of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why does he why does he come after us? What is the real objective here? Yeah, that, that's a great point. He, you know, we cannot be possessed by anything if we're believers. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. All he can do is kind of, you know, harass us and, and trip us up. I think he, number one, he's trying to, you know, if, if for parents out there, there's no better way to hurt a parent than to hurt their kids. Yeah. God loves us so much that, um, you know, that the enemy is going to go after that. And he's also trying to keep other people from coming into the kingdom. So if he can do anything to keep us from being a witness or, or like I mentioned, just stealing our joy or, or our ability to tell people the truth about God's Word. And I think, honestly, one big thing that he does is keep people out of God's Word. The less we know about God's love letter, uh, the less effective we're going to be. Oh, I think that that's true. Absolutely right. So let's talk a little bit about the history of spiritual warfare. You've really done a great job, Todd, in your book, outlining where this all begins. And really, people will tend to think, let's start with the garden. Let's talk about the fall of man into sin and the, the fruit of the garden and all the rest. You actually go further back, the roots of evil <laughs> that happened even before the garden occurred. Talk about that, if you would, a little bit about Lucifer and his fall and the fallen angels. Yeah, definitely. And I go back to pre-Genesis history, you know, before the angels were created and before the earth was created. And um, there was a time when all of the angels were just perfectly serving God. And uh, for whatever reason, God's sovereignty, he allowed there to be free will in that realm for for a time. And Satan was one of the highest uh, ranks of angels. You know, when you read different uh, passages about him, he was a beautiful creature. And even in the New Testament, in his fallen state, it says he appears as an angel of light. So he's not that, you know, red pitchfork guy that, you know, we see so often. He's, he's an angel. Of, he appears as an angel of light. But he was able to convince one-third of the angels to rebel with him. And so, so he convinced them that they could actually beat God and take his throne, which obviously did not happen. Uh, but once they did that, they were kind of locked into these two states of one-third fallen angels and two-thirds uh, still holy good angels. Um, and they, what's interesting is they kind of kept their rank and legal system. Like, God didn't destroy them on the spot. He's still able to, to do things. He's the prince of the power of the air or the god of this age, uh, the New Testament says. Right. Um, so his fall led to everything else related to spiritual warfare. Right. And yet Satan is a finite being. Satan is not omnipresent the way God is. What what difference does that make for Christians in understanding the power of Satan, the actual power of Satan that God has allowed him to have? That's a huge uh, miscommunication that a lot of people have is that God and Satan are, are equals battling for ta- territory. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, even, I think it was Martin Luther or, or someone from that era said, even the devil is God's devil. Yes. He's a created being. <laughs> he can only be in one place at one time. He, he does not have all knowledge. He's a very powerful being uh, with a very, very powerful network, but he's absolutely no match for God. And 
like with the resurrection. Every time Satan thinks he has God's plan cornered, uh, only to find out it was it was actually his own undoing that he was doing. Amen. That's great. Well, and when yeah. we go to Genesis 3, we see that promise, this prophecy of a future Messiah. Uh, God told the serpent that he would put enmity between him and the woman and between his offspring and hers. And he said, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a, a prophecy about Jesus and what he accomplished for us on Calvary. Uh, what is the significance of that promise right there in Genesis 3 when we are considering during spiritual warfare right now in our own lives. Yeah, that really is like a, a nuclear bomb that went off right there in Genesis 3. The Proto-Evangelium, it's, it's the first mention of a future Messiah or a coming Savior from the seed of the woman. So basically when God gave that, promise, that uh, prophecy, he cursed Satan, but he also tipped his hand a little bit and let Satan know there was a Messiah coming through the seed of the woman. So that changed Satan's plans from that point forward to try to keep this seed or this, you know, this future Messiah from coming. And then now that he's, now that he's come and, you know, he realized the resurrection defeated him. Now he's kind of shifted gears to set his sights on keeping us from, you know, becoming Christians and also trying to keep end times Bible prophecy from being fulfilled. Uh, And that's one reason he goes after the Jewish people so much, because there's so many end times prophecies specifically related to the Jewish people in the last days that, you know, he has, he convinced Hitler and others with extreme anti-Semitism to try to take out the Jewish people to keep prophecy from being fulfilled. That's an interesting point, and that's very, very true. We have to always keep those kinds of things in mind when we're looking at Scripture. And as you say, the seed war ensues. We've been engaged in this ever since, and we've seen it throughout Mm -hmm. the realm of human history from empire to empire. I mean, it's quite an astonishing thing, Todd, when you really take the time to look at the influence of, you know, the devil on the world over the course of human history. Yeah, we, we in America, even in the church, we've kind of let this secular humanistic mindset set in a little bit in that we almost go about life as if, you know, the world's just spinning and things are going on as planned. We know God's there, but he's not really involved. And we know there's a, a, a real devil, but he's not really doing anything and nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. All of this is heading somewhere. Absolutely. We're going to pause. Todd Hampson with us. The Nonprofit's Guide to Spiritual Warfare is his book. We'll come back. Right after this, you're listening to Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org/jmt or call now 855-565-2561. 855-565 
Kevin Sorbo of the hit films God's Not Dead and Let There Be Light gives his thoughts on the scourge of abortion. One of the greatest attacks in America was an attack perpetrated by our very own Supreme Court. Now, subsequent to that, there have been 70 million babies slugged in the wombs of their mothers. That is more than the entire population of Canada and Australia combined. And that's why Kevin Sorbo also supports preborn. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Will you join us in the cause for life? By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you here. And Todd Hampson is joining us. He is out with a really, I think, important book that really traces the history of spiritual warfare from a biblical perspective. It's called The Nonprofit's Guide to Spiritual Warfare, What Every Christian Needs to Know, all about equipping you for the battle. And boy, is it a battle, Todd, as you well know. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, we were talking about the roots of spiritual warfare, even going back to the beginning when we had the fall of Lucifer referenced in Isaiah 14. But now when we look at Genesis post-fall, we see some of the beginnings of this struggle. And we see, for example, the world becoming so evil that God flooded the world and wiped everybody out except Noah and his family. And we see the Tower of Babel where man says, I'm going to be like God. And this is the perpetual problem, isn't it? I mean, would you would you really bring it down to that basic principle that the devil wanted to be like God, the devil wanted to convince Adam and Eve that they could be like God. And that's been the problem with man ever since. That's the core problem of sin is we want to be God. We don't want to submit to God's authority. That's exactly it. You know, he wants to convince us, whether it's in cults or humanist philosophies, that we can kind of chart our own course and that we are God. We can dictate what we want to do. And and ultimately, when we get into the end times, that transitions to really what he wants is our worship. He wants us to worship him instead of God. So it's he kind of pulls a 180 on, on humans who are, are, you know, following that philosophy. So ultimately, he tricks tricks them into worshiping him. Yeah. Oh, scary. Now, when we get to the period where Jesus is born and his earthly ministry commences, we see an awful lot of demonic activity. And there is a lot of debate about what to what extent do we still have demon possession today and on and on and on. But we also see Jesus having time in Hades. I mean, we, we think of the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead. What are we to make about Jesus' encounter with demons and the devil himself, even in the temptation in the wilderness? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, because of prophecy, Satan knew exactly, you know, the time period that Jesus was going to come the first time. So I think that's why we see so much demonic activity around the time of Jesus's ministry with the temptation of Christ. And uh, and yeah, that's that's a factor uh, that many people don't think of that often, what was going on between his death and the resurrection. But we do have these, you know, handful of verses in the New Testament that shed light on that that um, it's, it's a little bit complex, but part of what he did was went and took the Old Testament saints and translated them to heaven. So it's, he's kind of merging, you know, he has this overall plan where he merges Old Testament saints and the church, and it's a beautiful merging picture. Um, but also he, yeah, it says he preached, <laughs> it, it, basically he went down there and told all the, 
the uh, angels that were imprisoned, you're, you guys are in trouble because uh, what you guys thought was a victory is actually going to be your destruction. Mm, yeah, preach to the spirits who were in prison. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, now, when we go through history, we continue to see occult activity. The devil is at work. Demons are at work. But now when we get to our day, um, you have a lot of people who don't even believe in heaven and hell, or maybe they're they're okay with heaven, but they're not so sure anybody goes to hell except perhaps <laughs> Hitler. Maybe Hitler, yeah. maybe Stalin go to hell, but nobody actually goes to hell besides the really, really bad guys. Uh, this is a huge deception, and and this is a huge deception perpetrated by the devil himself. If you you know, it's like Keith Green used to sing about. No one believes in me anymore. I, how, mm-hmm. how do you reflect on that problem in modern society? That really the devil has become for many people this caricature of the 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 goofy pitchfork and the red tail and all the rest. And we're not to take him seriously because only dum dums believe that there's a real devil. That's right. Yeah. It's funny. People, a lot of people will admit that there's evil, but they won't admit that there's, you know, a being or beings behind the evil. Yeah. Um, and like you said, the, the, the enemy's done a great job of, you know, you look at pop culture says a lot about what most people think. And there's pop culture where the devil's kind of a cool guy in these TV shows, you know, and he's not really that bad. And hell's really just going to be one big party. Well, nothing is further from the truth. And the other deception along with that is, People say, oh, well, why would God send people to hell? Hell is torture. Hell is a terrible place. What they don't realize is he's done everything possible to keep people out of hell, and any just God has to punish evil at some point. So hell is just that that fact that has to happen at some point, right. um, and we don't realize how evil evil really is um, in light of God's holiness. But um, if he didn't punish the Hitlers and everybody else even less evil than that, he wouldn't be a righteous God. So hell is a necessary part of God's uh, system. That's right. Exactly right. Now, when we come to Ephesians 6, which I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, we, we see all of the suit parts of the armor of God. And I mean, this is just such a deep passage. We could go on for hours, I'm sure, about this. But <laughs> what, are, what about the specifics on suiting up for spiritual battle? Because we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, yeah. the shield of faith, and of course, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Can you talk a little bit about what you think is significant about, you know, those pieces of armor that were to keep in mm-hmm. mind for spiritual warfare. Yeah, I think they. Uh, what's interesting is I, one reason I did kind of a whole systematic backstory to show why we need that was so that people would have a better better understanding on how to use the practical tools that God's given us to put on the spiritual spiritual armor. Um, and each piece, if you look at them, each piece has to do partly with God's. You know, for example, the breastplate of righteousness. It's, it's God's righteousness, it says there. So it's imputed to us, you know, it's, it's all about God. Yeah. But also we take part in how we live our lives. So, for example, we can live righteously. You know, we, we can put distance between us and temptation. We can take concrete actions and choices each day that help us to live righteously, and that actually protects us from the enemy. So the more we, we consciously think through all of the pieces of armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, the safer we are, the more effective we are, the more protected we are, because uh, the battle's coming at us whether we're prote- whether we put that armor on or not. So we might as well use it. Yeah, right. Well, and it always has struck me in verse 14 where it says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The first part of this armor mentioned is the belt of truth. And truth Mm -hmm. has really fallen on hard times in our day, Todd. I mean, you look at some of the statistics and the polling that's done even among professing Christians. We're not really known for being that zealous for the truth these days, are we? And, And how does that relate to spiritual warfare? 
We're really not. I mean, and that just allows deception to come in. And like, like you said, that's the first piece of armor that Paul mentioned. And interestingly, the breastplate and the breastplate fits into the belt of truth and the sword of the spirit hangs off of the belt of truth. So yeah. truth is mm. key to the entire thing. Um, and those first three pieces of armor, the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes of the gospel of peace, basically the, the way Paul explains it is there is you need to have these three on all the time. You need to be ready to go with these in place, and then you can take up the other armor as you need it. Um, so yeah, that, that truth is, is all important to everything else that we do. For sure. Now you talk about end time Bible prophecies being directly connected to spiritual warfare. Is there a particular form of spiritual battle that we should expect in the last days? Uh, you know, obviously the apostles believe they were in the last days. We're closer to the last days than they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you see that subject and that, that particular angle on it, that spiritual battle will be more intense in the last days? Yeah, I think as we near the time of the rapture and the tribulation period, we'll begin to see its shadows casting upon us. So the the conditions that Revelation and Daniel talk about, like, for example, the technology of the mark of the beast, the geopolitical alignments of the nations, um, you know, the obsession with dividing Israel and Jerusalem, and there's several other things that have to happen in the tribulation period. So as we carefully look at the news of the day and we see those things beginning to fall in place, um, and, and included with that is occultism. We should see a ramp up in the occult and witchcraft and people uh, lawlessness like we're seeing in our cities right now. All of that is related to end times conditions you know, preparing the way for this last seven years of, of Earth history. Wow. So the rise in evil, the rise in lawlessness, you think of passages like the, the love of men will grow cold, there will be a ruthlessness, you know, you think of Timothy. Uh, all of these passages come to mind in the New Testament. Uh, anything in particular that you're looking for, you know, understanding Bible prophecy as you do, uh, in terms of what the devil will be doing in in the last days prior to the time that the Lord comes for us? Yeah, I think, well, two things. One, there's, a, there's, there's going to be a great falling away from truth, even within the church, and I think we see a lot of that happening already. Yeah. And also another big push is we'll see a giant uh, push for globalism, and we're seeing that in our day. There's an event coming up that um, the World Economic Forum is putting together called the Great Reset, where it's mm. all about globalism. Yeah. Uh, and, and that connects back to the Tower of Babel and stuff like that. So it is a spiritual warfare thing. And we know that in the end times, a person we affectionately call the Antichrist is going to rule a one world government. Um, so the fact that we're seeing a gigantic push for that right now in our day, uh, and anyone who's a nationalist or, you know, trying to do good for their country is seen as standing in the way of this this new world order, so to speak. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's almost surreal, isn't it? Because I know it it, talking for many, many decades about Bible prophecy and what will happen. And I sometimes go back and look at some of the prophecy experts from the 70s. And I think they thought it was bad then. What would they be saying mm-hmm. now? Some of those who have already moved, <laughs> moved on to heaven. But what yeah. kind of pushback, Todd, do you think we can expect? from Satan, when we are willing to put on the armor of God and stand in the evil day, what should Christians expect the results will be when we are heightened and paying attention to the battle and wearing our armor and using it as God intends? What should we keep in mind will occur when we do that? Well, anytime you stand on the top of a hill, you're going to be seen by the enemy. So you can expect some attacks. Um, you can expect 
some people to misunderstand you. I mean, I talk about end times Bible prophecy quite a bit, and some people misunderstand that. Some some people honestly, you know, uh, send some pretty mean emails, but that's that pales in comparison to what some people uh, experience in in some countries where Christians are murdered and martyred and persecuted. Right. Um, so we can expect some resistance for sure on 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 every angle. Well, that's right. And it's important to keep that in mind. But boy, I'm really glad that you put out this book, Todd, because I think it's a really great resource for Christians to understand the Bible from beginning to end and put spiritual warfare into context. Again, the name of the book is The Nonprofit's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. Todd Hampson with us. Great book, Todd, and great to talk to you as always. Thank you so much for being with us. Likewise. It was my pleasure. Thank All right. you so much. Thank you, Todd. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas this week, pushed back against the favorite Democrat talking point of the moment. They are now saying that if Amy Coney Barrett is put on the bench in the U.S. Supreme Court, that would totally invalidate Americans' health care. Lots of scare tactics going on, and Senator Cruz said the hysteria is unwarranted, but there's a reason for that that goes beyond just what the GOP and the Democrats are arguing about. Healthcare sharing ministries like Liberty Health Share offer a different way of paying your medical bills beyond insurance. So we're going to get some thoughts on all of this now from Matt Bellis. He is Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. So good to have you with us again, Matt. How are you? Always a pleasure to be here, Jenna. Doing great. Thank you. You must find this kind of amusing at times when there's this kind of back and forth over Obamacare because you guys do a different way of people sharing their medical expenses. But what do you make of this debate that's going on? The left saying Amy Coney Barrett would invalidate health care and the GOP saying no, it wouldn't. Uh, Where do you come down on all of this? Yeah, we follow it very closely because health care sharing itself is within the law of the ACA in terms of its allowance. Uh, but as a healthcare sharing ministry, we look at it and just say the, the whole uh, issue is ridiculous. Hmm. Uh, the fact that so many people are hanging on the job position of one person to validate or invalidate a law that would validate or invalidate their health care is a position that we should not be in as Americans. Yeah. We should have the freedom to choose, to guide, to manage and direct our health care in the way that we see fit, that we should have the choice and opportunity and access and control of costs that we should have within health care. And thank God that there are options out there that allow you to do that. One of them 
is health care sharing and Liberty Health Share. Yeah, you make a really good point, Matt, when you're saying we shouldn't be reliant upon one person and this one law to, to even have that kind of control over whether or not you have your health care covered. And I agree with you on that totally. The New York Times, for example, has warned 12 million Americans could lose coverage because that's how many people actually got coverage through the Medicaid expansion. And, and again, the GOP is shooting that down and saying, you know, this is hysteria for nothing. But again, we're talking about millions of people who really are dependent upon the ACA in this particular you know aspect of it. What is the difference with Liberty HealthShare and the way that you are helping people to control their health care costs? Basically, we're advising people to, ba- to drop out of the system because that's what health care sharing does. It drops you out of the third-party payment system whether it's an insurer or the government or somebody who is in charge of your health care making decisions on your behalf, that's a system that you should step away from. And you should be given the power and autonomy to make decisions on your health care based upon your values. And with Liberty HealthShare, we have that. We are a community of like-minded men and women all across the country who have gathered together to share medical expenses with one another. During times that are unexpected and unaffordable, we gather together to systematically fund each other in our health care. And we do that without the aid or benefit of any kind of third-party insurance program or government mandate. So this is a true way to take back control over your health care where you are given the freedom and autonomy over your health with a community behind you to help you in your time of need. Right. So you mentioned some very key elements, one of which being values. This is something that has been fought actually at the Supreme Court uh, several times. This issue, for example, of having to fund abortion or abortion inducing drugs through Obamacare. And that's gone to court, uh, as I mentioned several times, whether or not the government actually has the authority to tell you to do that if it goes against your values. How does Liberty HealthShare see it differently? This issue, not just of abortion, but of some of these other values-laden issues that come up when you're allowing the government to be in on your health care? Well, we feel that it is within the confines of the biblical worldview that we should be basing our decisions off of, and that if you have those values, you should be able to live out those precepts in your daily life. And one of the areas in which our daily life has been vastly ignored up until this point is within the realm of healthcare. So many people have been able to make decisions uh, on what they think is right rather than what you think is right. A lot of people today don't even realize that a portion of their healthcare dollars may be going to uh, things like abortions and abortive fashions or high-risk lifestyles or other areas of their life that may directly go opposed, diametrically opposed, to their particular values. So we feel that if you have the right to uh, live and be guided by your own personal beliefs and values, and you want to join in a community that shares those values, you should be able to guide and manage and direct your, your life in health care with those same exact values. Yeah. It, it really isn't that 
hard, and we should really be allowed to do that. And it's strange that whenever we're in this day and age, that type of idea is somewhat novel out there. Uh, it makes you step back and think, maybe I should be taking this thing a little bit more seriously. Absolutely. You know, and, and some listeners may be asking, how do you qualify? I know when I sign up for a new insurance plan, I have to fill out all these forms and going, you know, go through this entire process. What is the process like to make the switch from third-party payer to healthcare sharing? It's actually very simple. If your contract or your policy is expiring in a certain time period, or if you want to cancel that policy, you can go right ahead and do so based upon your decisions and what you think is best for you and your family. Go on to our website, libertyhealthshare.org, and you can sign up right there on the website. It doesn't take but 10 to 15 minutes uh, of your time to just go through the questionnaire process. And we'll be back in touch with you after we receive your application within 24 to 72 hours. So it's a very simple, very easy process. It's just moving from one area to the next, like you would do with just about any other thing. But the, the real message and the real uh, value in joining Liberty HealthShare is that we're a community that gives you back the power over your health care again and supports you in your time of need. You can't say that with third-party payment systems. Right. Well, a lot of people also are concerned about how much they're having to pay and how much the insurance premiums have skyrocketed since the advent of the ACA. What about this important issue of coverage and of how much people actually have to pay? These things are very fundamental, important issues for everybody because we all have budgets we have to meet and stay within. What about those issues of cost and of being able to get the coverage that you need? Well, we're very sensitive to those, and we want to do as much as we can at Liberty HealthShare to meet a person's budget as much as possible. Uh, we as a uh, organization are still bound by the, uh, the levels of the marketplace forces, so we need to set uh, our sharing levels accordingly. But we take that very seriously, and we don't go through very expensive procedures like actuarial analysis, or uh, we don't do any kind of uh, upfront cost quoting of our healthcare dollars that just rack up the costs within healthcare. We do absolutely everything we can to make our share amounts as low as possible so that our members are able to retain their money, control it, and make sure that they're getting the most bang out of their buck when it comes to their health care dollars. Right. And then you have different plans, don't you, uh, as far as coverage goes? We do have different uh, programs. Uh, we have Liberty uh, uh, Select uh, that is coming out here very soon. It's actually a new program uh, that we're very excited about. We have Liberty Share, Liberty Plus, and Liberty Complete, uh, ranging in a variety of different costs and expenses. And if people want to look at those, they can feel free to go online at libertyhealthshare.org and make sure that it fits their particular budgets. Very good. Well, you know, people really owe it to themselves to be able to check out the options. And when we're looking at Liberty Health Share, National Nonprofit Healthcare Sharing Ministry, this is a very good way for you to be able to hold to your values and also to have the coverage that you need. You can check it out again at libertyhealthshare.org. Matt Bellis from Liberty Health Share. Always good to visit with you, Matt. Have a great day. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. We'll be right back.
For several years now, Syrians have been pouring into the country of Lebanon to seek refuge amid terrorism and civil war. Now the crisis in Lebanon has escalated in the aftermath of COVID-19, a crumbling economy, and a devastating explosion in Beirut. Yet the spiritual crisis in Lebanon is the most devastating crisis of all because many people there have still never heard anything about Jesus. That's why Heart for Lebanon is on the ground ministering to hurting refugee families in the south and the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing emergency supplies, Christian education, Bible studies, and worship gatherings for these refugee families. And the impact is incredible. Shana was one of those kids who had never heard about Jesus until God used Heart for Lebanon to give her the good news of eternal life. When she was given the assignment in Heart for Lebanon's educational program to write about a defining moment in her life, Shana chose to write this. We were in Syria, and we knew nothing about Christ the Lord. When we came to Lebanon, I joined Heart for Lebanon School. It is there where I got to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and that whosoever worships Him will have eternal life. Shana had that opportunity to hear about Jesus because people just like you were willing to support the work of Heart for Lebanon, but they can't do it without your help. Your investment of $116 will help two families impacted by the crisis in Lebanon to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. A gift of $58 is enough to help one family. Can you help? Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, that number to call, 888-247-5499. A gift of $58 helps one family right now. Call 888-247-5499. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you so much for being with us. There is still a lot to talk about. Hold over from the debate. I don't know. I feel like in some regard that took some recovery on my part. Well, I think a lot of people felt like that. If you tuned into the first presidential debate, you're still probably reeling a little bit as well. Not only because of what actually occurred, Chris Wallace, his big two against one move against President Trump. That, that was just awful. Total train wreck. Uh, totally unfair, totally biased. And it's kind of funny because there are people on both sides of the aisle who absolutely disdained the way that Chris Wallace performed as moderator during the presidential debate. But you know what I found was very interesting? Do you recall before the debates ever took place, there were a number of people on the left who were advocating for Biden not to debate at all. We talked about that at the time. And I was not the only one to think this, but I I did say at the time, of course, they don't want him to debate. They're scared to death. They don't want him to go into his gaff routine when he stands up there or forget things as he's prone to do, like he's been showing on the campaign trail. There are you know, numbers that are misquoted and weird things that he says and insulting people. Of course, he's good at insulting people. He did some of that during the debate against President Trump. Very, very classy. So they didn't want him to debate. But isn't it interesting that almost on cue, in fact, perhaps we could argue that it was on cue. I don't have proof of that. But let's just go with that. It was on cue. After this debate went down the way it did, you had a whole army of people on the left saying, this just goes to show you that there shouldn't be any more debates. Let me play for you a little montage of some of those talking heads on TV saying this. This is cut one. So very simple question. After what went down this evening, do you think Joe Biden should participate 
in a second or third debate. Should the next two debates go on as scheduled? I wouldn't be surprised, by the way, if this is the last presidential debate. Should there be other debates? Are we really going to repeat this? Are we going to have another two of, of these? I think we have to hear from the Presidential Commission on Debates tomorrow. We, 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 we can't do two more of these. Why are we bothering a, with a discussion of the rules, of format, of time limits, of uh, moderators at all when we have just seen what is going to happen? Isn't that interesting? Brian Williams and Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer and several others in that montage all saying the same thing. Kind of weird, isn't it? Shades of 2016 and the DNC talking points and Donna Brazil and all the rest. Just just kind of reminds me of all of that. And I find it interesting because here's my perspective on it. When I was speaking on yesterday's show about that debate, I was making the point that I value presidential debates and I've watched them for decades. Even as a kid, I watch presidential debates. One of the things I love about debates is you are listening to two different points of view, but you are allowing people not only to express those points of view and make their points, but you are allowing the other person to respond. You are allowing for cross-examination in some cases. You are allowing for opening statements and closing statements. And that's generally been how it's gone. The debate format on Tuesday night was horrible. It was horrible. You did not have these opening statements. You did not have built into the debate format this typical cross-examination or you can respond for a minute the way we've seen in previous debates. And that was the fault of the people who planned the debate. I lay that at the feet of Chris Wallace and maybe some others as well who were in on planning it. So that was a problem. The debate format in and of itself was a problem. Second of all, you had a moderator who wasn't even feigning neutrality. He was completely in the tank for Joe Biden. He didn't ask any difficult questions of Joe Biden. In fact, he helped out Joe Biden at one point when Joe Biden couldn't remember a question and Wallace was giggling and saying, oh yeah, I have problems remembering that too. You're not supposed to do that if you're a moderator. So he was awful. He asked President Trump to come, you know, to uh, denounce white supremacists. And he said, sure, who are you talking about? And then the left picks up on this and says, see, he wouldn't denounce them. He was trying to be specific. Did he turn at any point to Joe Biden and ask him to condemn Antifa or to condemn Black Lives Matter? No, nah, it never happened. You, Chris Wallace is smart enough to know exactly what he was doing. He knew he was getting the president and putting him on the spot in, in a way that he did not do to Joe Biden. So in some regards, people would say Biden was there trying to get through the process and and Wallace was helping him not make any more gaffes than he would have otherwise. But here's the point. Reasonable, rational people understand the value of presidential debates. That's why we've had them for all of this time. It's so people can listen to the positions of the candidates and watch them in action and make determinations about maybe the character and maybe the way the personality is and, and, and most importantly, what the policies are of these particular candidates and decide for themselves this guy, I, I think, is more presidential than the other guy. I agree with this position more than this one. It's to give people access to the candidates in a way that a structured, controlled interview of two minutes uh, via a, a, a split screen on CNN is not going to do. So if you're reasonable, what you would say to all of this that occurred on Tuesday night is we need to scuttle this terrible format and we need to get a new moderator and we need to get assurances from each side that you're not going to come into the debate with your fists up 
And, and there were times that President Trump also was engaging in that. But here's what I would argue. What I would argue is Trump has been absolutely slaughtered by the fake news media for four years. It's not that there's nothing that has needed to be reported about President Trump. I don't think he's perfect. I think there are some times when you do need to do some tough reporting, even if it's a person that you basically like and agree with. That's fine. He walked into that particular debate knowing, knowing full well that he wasn't going to get a fair shot. So his dukes were up. He was fighting for time. He was fighting to defend himself, and he only got more into it when he saw that Wallace was completely siding with Biden. And Biden got mad because Trump was firing shots at him that were landing effectively, that were shots that Chris Wallace should have taken as the moderator. So the problem is not the debate. The problem is how it was set up, who the moderator was, and how it was conducted. You can fix that if you're an honest, reasonable person who understands the value of presidential debates, and they clearly do on the left understand the value of presidential debates. What they don't have is confidence in their own candidate to be able to perform well without that kind of propping up. So we got a whole slew of stories from the left, not just that montage that you heard from cable pundits, but also a slew of stories. You had the Washington Post saying we ought to suspend the rest of the debates. We have a story here from Time magazine saying we need to stop the debates. We have Slate.com cancel the rest of the debates. We have another story here from The Atlantic, of course, cancel the debates. Tonight brought the first debate of this presidential election, and if there is any sense left in this nation, it will be the last two. Why in the world would you want to cancel the debates when, in fact, the debates really were aimed at bringing down Trump? Was it because of the Telemundo poll that showed that Hispanics overwhelmingly said that Trump won? Do they think that Trump is really benefiting from these debates in a way that Joe Biden is not? They must think something like that. Otherwise, why would they do that? But I think the coordinated narrative is absolutely fascinating. All of a sudden, everybody on the left, it suddenly occurred to them to have the exact same thing to say. We ought to cancel the rest of the debates. The American people better not put up with that. We need more debates, not fewer. But we need to have people who are fair and fair-minded who are going to be the people doing the questioning. And I don't know if those people exist. By the way, I want to play this to another moment that I didn't get a chance to get to and mention yesterday. Did you hear Joe Biden's reference to Islam? Listen to cut two. Millions of dollars, and you'll get to see it. I, I, and you'll get to when? see it. But let Inshallah. me just tell you. Inshallah. Did you notice that when he made that reference to Inshallah and there were Muslims on the Internet talking about wasn't that great that he had that Islamic reference in the debate? I'm like, that was completely random. What was that about? Another random thing. This was weird as well. Jake Tapper making this comment about feedback related to the debate. Absolutely strange. Listen to cut three. We're all getting text messages from friends all over the country. Uh, a friend of mine uh, in Kansas City uh, watching her first debate with her sixth grade daughter. Daughter bursts into tears, has to run to bed because she was so appalled, mm-hmm. uh, the sixth grade girl, at what she saw from the president of the United States. You got to be kidding me. That's what it's come down to. I have a friend in Kansas City who has a six-year-old who was watching the debate and burst into tears and had to run to bed because she was so appalled by the way the president behaved during the debate. Okay. I have a friend with a two-year-old who was appalled that Chris Wallace didn't ask Joe Biden to condemn Antifa. How about that, Jake Tapper? (laughs) Should we go to... Is that the route we're going to go now is... 
serious newsmen. I have a friend who texted me with a no-name four-year-old daughter who really thought it was terrible the way that President Trump was dressed, and she was traumatized. Now she wants to go join Black Lives Matter. Oh, really? This is not reporting. This is not serious journalism whatsoever. It's garbage journalism. And we're going to get a lot more like it before November hits. I'll tell you that much. We'll try not to do it here, though. Thank you for being with us. We really appreciate your tuning in. We'll see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today. Today.